so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to Weekly Tech, a podcast of ethics, theology, and philosophy in a technological society. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Christian Miller, who's a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University and the director of the Honesty Project. We talk about his new book from Oxford University Press, Honesty, The Philosophy and Psychology of a Neglected Virtue. He's also the author of over 100 academic papers, as well as four books, including Moral Character and Empirical Theory, Character and Moral Psychology, The Character Gap, How Good Are We?, and Moral Psychology. He's also the science contributor for Forbes, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Dallas Morning News, Slate, The Conversation, Newsweek, and Christianity Today. And now let's join our conversation. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining me today on Weekly Tech. Can you give us a little bit about your background and interest in philosophy, psychology, and virtue ethics, and kind of your journey to studying these things formally? Sure. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on the podcast. It's really an honor. I, we could fill up the entire time with, with my journey, so I'll give you the really condensed version. Uh, I got into philosophy in high school uh, when I was thinking about questions about God. I was wondering whether God exists or not, and I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis opened me up to a lot of philosophy, religion, and other authors, contemporary and in the past. That took me on a couple years down the road, my senior year in high school, I had a chance to take classes at a local college, and it was a Christian college, so I, I took an introduction to philosophy with Dr. Bible. Uh, and I'm, hmm. I'm kidding you not, that was his name. Uh, and he uh, gave, in, awesome. introduced me formally to the study of philosophy. I ended up taking three classes with him before going off to Princeton for undergraduate, majoring in philosophy, uh, off to Notre Dame for graduate school, getting my PhD in philosophy, and then being hired at Wake Forest University, where I first started uh, wrestling with issues of ethics and morality, but different issues from character. These were issues about the objectivity of morality, the foundations of morality. Where does morality come from? Is it something that human beings construct, so it's more socially or culturally relative? Or is it independent of human beings, where we don't have the choice over what morality says? It's already kind of set in stone for us. And that that topic really grabbed, grabbed me for quite a while. I said what I wanted to say, and then I kind of well, I said what I wanted to say, so I wanted to do something else. And that's when character came along and virtue. Uh, I was particularly interested in questions not just about what is the definition of virtue and 
how do we philosophically define a character trait, but also really kind of nitty-gritty, messy, empirical questions about does anyone actually have the virtues? Are there virtuous people out there today? And so that's where I had to go outside of philosophy, look to the empirical sciences, and in particular psychology, to give me some data about how people really behave and is their pattern of behavior what you would expect of a virtuous person, a vicious person, or something in between. So that, um, that's why I moved in that direction, and I ended up been working in, on the topic of character for the last, oh boy, 12 years or so now. Still, still got its kind of teeth sunk into me, um, and I can't let it go yet. Well, I know early on in this, this volume, uh, which is really well done, by the way, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that, you kind of mentioned that this is a neglected virtue in many ways. It's something that there hasn't been a lot of work done specifically on this character trait of honesty. So what drove you specifically to write this volume and also to consider this a neglected virtue among the kind of plethora of virtues that have been studied? Right. That's a great question. Um, so my earlier work on character was general. I was looking at just virtues in general, character traits in general, vices in general. And I was reading the psychology literature, I was reading the philosophy literature, ended up writing two academic books on character and then translating that into a larger, for a larger audience and a trade book called The Character Gap, How Good Are We? After the trade book was finished and out there, I kind of had another one of these moments where I felt like I said what I wanted to say and I didn't really want to deal much with that anymore. You know, I kind of wanted to move on to something else. But I was so, you know, kind of immersed in the character world, I didn't want to just leave that behind. So I looked around and said, well, what topics are really underexplored in the philosophy of character? There are certain virtues that, for whatever reason, just have not gotten much attention. Generosity is one of them. Graciousness is another one. But the one that really jumped out at me is, was honesty. And it jumped out at me for a couple of reasons. First of all, it seems to me obvious virtue. I mean, it's, there's not much debate that honesty is a good thing to have. It's, a, it's one of the paradigm virtues. Also, it seemed to jump out at me because there was a real lack of it in our society. Um, in all kinds of ways, we're missing this, this virtue. And thirdly, it jumped out at me because it really was neglected in the sense of philosophers and people in other fields were saying almost nothing about it. To this extent, there was not a book written on honesty and philosophy in the last 50 years. There were maybe two articles in any philosophy journal on honesty in the last 50 years. So this was just a stunning oversight, I thought, a mission. Here's a really important virtue. We need to address it more in society, and philosophers aren't saying anything about it. Here's a chance to, for me to say something, do something new, you know, get, get in there and, and try and advance the discussion of a really important virtue where no one else is paying attention to it. Yeah, and I know you early on in the book mentioned that honesty can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It kind of depends on how you approach it. And I think for many, cultivating the idea of virtue sounds appealing, but it also can be a little confusing, especially if you take a more often kind of the traditional Christian approach to uh, ethics and morality that are often focused on rule-based systems, kind of virtue ethics has kind of come back to life in some sense, where you're starting to see a lot more philosophers, a lot more theologians and ethicists write about these topics. So can you help us to understand what, what you mean by honesty? What is this virtue? And then some of the differences between someone doing the honest thing versus being an honest person. 
that's a really great question. And I might have to, you might have to cut me off at some point. Uh, I might have to, I might go on too long. Um, so you're right that uh, in the history of ethics, in particular in the last 300 or 400 years, there's been a lot of focus on actions and the outcomes or consequences of actions. You have Immanuel Kant's approach, he focused on actions. You have the utilitarians like Bentham and Mill, they focused on the consequences, they're utilitarian philosophers. And at the same time, there was a real neglect of virtue in general. Philosophers were not thinking about that as central to their way of approaching ethics. That's changed in roughly the 1970s and 80s. There was a real big groundswell of interest in virtue and character as important and maybe even as the basis for ethics. And this led to the virtue ethics movement that you you alluded to, which goes all the way back to the earliest Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and try to revitalize what they say today and say it's still important. Now, from with respect to honesty specifically, we want to think about, okay, there's honesty, the virtue, and then there are honest actions. Honest actions are just kind of one-off behaviors that you do. So, you know, at a party, you tell the truth about something. On your taxes, you don't cheat on your taxes in 2021. Uh, those are specific instances of behavior, which we would call an honest action. Now, that's important. I don't want to downplay that. But that's, there's a lot more to being virtuously honest than just performing specific honest actions. I'll, na- I'll name a couple of things. Um, first of all, there has to be a consistency to your actions. If you're an honest person, not just honest acts, but actually have that virtue, um, your actions have to display a certain kind of consistency, a consistent pattern across situations and over time. So you had better be exhibiting honest behavior, not just at the party, but also at the office, at home, in the classroom, when you're doing your taxes and so forth. That's consistency across situations. And there's also consistency across time. So it better not just be today or just one week out of the year, but you want to see a kind of stable pattern of honest behavior from one month to the next, to the next, to the next. So that's all important. The the kind of overall comprehensive picture of behavior matters when we're talking about the virtue of honesty. But there's there's even more to it than that. This is why I said it's we could, we, you know, there's a lot to say because that's all the outward expression of the virtue. What also matters is, and maybe even more, but at least matters a lot, is the inward heart. So what's behind the behavior? So I think for any virtue, and honesty is a, is a virtue, so it's going to be true for honesty as well, um, you have to have the right kind of thinking, the right kind of motivation, and then together those give rise to the outward behavior, expression of behavior. So to elaborate on that a little bit more, if someone, say, uh, tells the truth pretty reliably, but only for crudely self-serving reasons, say they want to make a good impression on other people, or they don't want to you know, get made fun of, or they don't want to get punished for lying, um, or they don't want to lose their job, or this kind of thing, that's all self-centered. It's all egoistic. That's not the right kind of motivation if you're a virtuously honest person. Now, it's better that the person tells the truth and doesn't tell the truth. So I don't want to downplay, the, be too hard on that person. It's good. The behavior is good. But the heart underlying the behavior also has to be virtuous. 
So in the case of, and this will be my last point, and we can, you know, if we can follow up at it however you like, but in the case of honesty, you want to see motivation that is not self-focused, but is focused on something larger than the self. It could be altruistic motivation, which means motivation concerned with the good of another person. It could be dutiful motivation. So that could be, that, that's motivation concerned with what's right, doing what's right, or your duty, or what you've been commanded by God to do, those kind of things. But the key thing is it doesn't all, at the end of the day, come back to trying to benefit yourself. If it does, then that falls short of the virtue of honesty. Yeah, to follow up on that then, is there, what are the similarities or maybe the differences between a more theological approach to virtue ethics and specifically honesty, and maybe a more philosophical, more broadly philosophical approach to honesty as a virtue? Are there similarities and overlaps or are there any distinct differences between those two approaches? That, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I want to say, I want to first caveat this by saying I'm not a theologian and I'm also not a historian either. So I, whatever I say is probably going to be pretty simplistic and naive. I would say in my mind, when we think just about the Christian tradition, because we'd have to go kind of religious tradition by religious tradition and see what they have to say, but just from the Christian perspective, I see more overlap than I do difference. So I see going all the way back to the New Testament, an emphasis on character and virtue there, say Paul with the fruit of the Spirit. I see that as not just concerned with behavior, but what kind of person you are. I see Paul repeatedly talk about um, what his motivation is like and what his motivation or is like and what it should be like and how those are different and how he's falling short motivationally. And I see theologians throughout the tradition emphasizing a kind of approach to character, which is both uh, external in terms of behavior and internal towards in terms of your heart being in the right place. That might be glossing over things too quickly. I will highlight uh, one interesting complexity, and there are, there are others too, but I'll just highlight one, which is the source of your character. Now, here... You know, from a philosophical, secular philosophical perspective, the focus on character will typically be on how a person can grow in character left to his or her own devices. So, or maybe with the help of friends and family or the community. But from a Christian perspective, there's an emphasis on divine intervention, I think. Um, and that gets cashed out in different ways, and to the extent to which it's um, completely deterministic or not, if we have a more Calvinist approach. Uh, or if, there, if there's a significant role for free will of a libertarian kind as well, that all gets worked out in the tradition. But uh, the point, the central point being that in the life, say, of the believer who is undergoing the process of sanctification, the Holy Spirit is working on a person's character gradually over time. And that could mean that some of a person's virtue or degree of virtue is not entirely of their own volition. Or if it is of their own volition, it's because God caused their volition to be a certain way. But that the point being that um, there's more than just the human being involved in the process of cultivating honesty when we bring in, I think, a Christian theological approach here. Well, I guess to zoom out a little bit, kind of thinking a lot of the kind of modern day controversy surrounding this idea of honesty and uh, the virtues, I know throughout our society, there seems to be kind of a renewed emphasis and uh, discussion about misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, and even conspiracy theories. And uh, this is obviously especially prominent with the ubiquity of social media and sharing these derivations of truth. 
And much of the information that we hear about even recently has been tied to COVID-19 and health disinformation and misinformation, but even to political and other social issues as well. Is there a connection between this virtue of honesty and the rise of these manipulations of truth today? And how honest do you think we are as a society based on your research? Yeah, let's take that in, in two parts. Um, so I, I think the online issue is fascinating. This is where a lot of my current research is. I'm writing several papers on this topic. Um, and I think it, it's more complicated than you, we might think. So it really depends on where we're looking online. Why do I say that? Um, because actually, the way I read some of the empirical research, there's good reason to think that part of the online world is not that deceptive. In fact, we might be even more honest in part of the online world than we are in person. So this is quite counterintuitive and surprising. So let me elaborate on this part. Um, so when you look at empirical research on people's honesty with respect to LinkedIn, so the, you know, the business networking site. Yeah, where we get all of the emails every single yes, day. Yes, we do. <laughs> Most of them get deleted in my case. Um, uh, or f even Facebook. It also extends to email and text messaging. There are a number of studies which suggest that people are no more dishonest there than they are in person and may even be more honest. Now, that defies expectation because you've asked, what, what do people expect to be the case? Overwhelmingly, people expect there to be more dishonesty. But it turns out to be not the case, at least if you believe these studies. Now, now why is that? Well, because in those parts of the online world, you are identifiable. Uh, you're not anonymous. So on LinkedIn, your name is there, your current job is there, your past history is there. It's all there for the person to see. And it's not just one person who sees it, like if it was a traditional job interview, like it might be a one or a couple of people who see your resume and interact with you. Normally, there are going to be hundreds and hundreds of people who see that public profile that you put up there, and they can catch lies and deception. So if you put up, you know, you've got this master's degree from so-and-so, and you don't, well, it's likely someone's going to catch that. It's going to be hot, hard to get that by the eyes of lots, hundreds of viewers, including your current friends and employers, than it is in front of a hiring committee of one or two people. So um, LinkedIn, and that's just, it's just one example, um, not clear that there's evidence of more dishonesty. Generalize that point now to something like Facebook. Well, same thing with Facebook. It's identifiable. You, you know who that person is that you're friends with. You've often interacted with that person face-to-face. Studies, at least the couple that I'm aware of, have found that the person you present yourself as on Facebook corresponds pretty closely to the person you really are. And then, then you think, okay, that's one side of social media. Um, the identifiable part of social media is even, even online dating. If you've got a profile up on an online dating site, well, again, you're identifiable. You better be pretty much close to how that profile actually, what that profile says you are, because otherwise when you get together for the first time with that person, you know, who's you've connected with, you bet, you know, be, you don't want that person to be in for a big surprise. Um, that person, that date's not going to go, that first date's not going to go so well if you're really different than you are in your profile. Now, this is all caveated by, you know, the part of social media where you can identify the person. Now, obviously, 
things like anonymous chat rooms, it's a totally different story. Once you take away that identifiability and you can hide behind the cloak of anonymity, uh, looks like, yes, um, people are behaving more deceptively and, and dishonestly than they would in real life. Because they can get away with it, no real consequences. Yeah, and I think there's also one kind of aspect of that is that there's, in many ways, when we approach the digital, our digital lives, we have our digital lives separated from our real lives. And so sometimes people will act a different way online, which may be honest, actually true to their honest self about the way they feel and the way they act. But as you said, there's a divide in maybe the way they interact with other people. And so I think kind of following up on that question even is how honest are we today? I would assume you would say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that it's kind of a mixed bag, that in some ways we're more honest than we've been, but in other ways we're more dishonest. And so that's kind of a mixed bag and a mixed reality that we're in. Yes, that's right. So I, I first take your point uh, that sometimes people might feel more comfortable expressing their true selves and who they really are online than they might in person with others. So uh, that's a very interesting point. And then just more broadly, the question, how good are we or how honest are we in general? W using our earlier terminology, we could say, to what extent are most people honest, have the virtue of honest, honesty? Um, that question I've spent a lot of time thinking about and researching, uh, and I talk about half the book, the honesty book that just came out, is to budge that question. Here, I don't look at the online world too much. I just look at, instead, I pivot to looking at psychological research that puts people into different situations and sees whether they do the honest thing, the dishonest thing, uh, or they kind of are a mixed bag. And to make that a little bit more concrete, I'll give you an actual study in a kind of situation that probes people's honesty. So if you take a group of people, so often they're, they're college students, but they don't have to be, you bring them into the lab, you say, we want you to take this test, it's going to have 20 problems, and we're going to pay you 50 cents per correct answer. Every, every answer you get correct, you'll get 50 cents. Okay, so you, you sit down, you take the test, uh, you work as hard as, as you can, you turn in your test, you get graded by the person in charge, and you get paid accordingly. So that's cut and dry, there's no opportunity to cheat. Now you take another group of people, you bring them into the lab, you give them the test, you say the 50 cents per correct answer, but you change it slightly so that now they get to grade their tests themselves when they're done, destroy their materials, and report whatever results they want. And, you know, no questions asked. If they say, I got them all right, they'll get paid $10. If they say, I got none of them right, they'll be paid nothing. Well, um, here we have now a comparison. How do that, does that group do compared to the baseline control group? Well, in one study in the control group where there's no opportunity to cheat, there were seven correct answers on average. In the shredder condition, which is where they got to destroy their materials, it was 14 so it wasn't because they, I mean, maybe, you know, hypothetically it could be, I guess, but I'm not thinking it's because they were just so much smarter or performed so much better on the test. It's that they took advantage of the opportunity to cheat. Now, one last thing about that, then I'll step back, I'll zoom back and, and say what my overall conclusion is. There, from that kind of basic setup, there have been lots of variations of that study. Uh, so, you, you know, there are variations where you, sh you share a birthday with someone else in your group or... Um, you see other people cheating, and so you, uh, you know, do you cheat in that setup. One really fascinating one, though, is where they had people come into the lab. Um, they had them, they told them about the test and that they would you know, have the opportunity to, to grade the test themselves and destroy their materials. 
But first, they, these were students, they had them sign their honor code, the honor code of their university, before they took the test. And in that group, the average performance went back down to the control level. So there was no evidence of cheating in that group, which is quite stunning. Uh, so what is my overall conclusion? Well, I'd never draw any conclusions from one study or even a, a small group of studies because that's just very risky. I'm sure many listeners have heard about the replication failure these days in psychology where a lot of studies are not replicating. So I, I, I look at you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of studies collectively. And the conclusion what I draw is, yes, exactly, we're a mixed bag, like you said. We're, most of us are not good enough to be honest, but also most of us are not bad enough to be just, just viciously dishonest. And that study that we, I just went over, kind of in a microcosm, captures that point. Because in one, on the one hand, in one variation of it, people cheated pretty extensively, 14 on average, whereas seven was what they probably would have gotten. So that's not very honest. On the other hand, there was, you know, when they signed the honor code, the cheating went away. If people were robustly dishonest, they would have signed the honor code as a mere formality and then gone right ahead and cheated. But they didn't do that. They performed like they would have if they had no opportunity to cheat. So again, I think that study is a pretty good illustration. For the most part, a mixed bag. Well, I guess to shift gears a little bit to some of the current research and current projects you're working on, as we mentioned earlier in your bio, you're currently the director of the Honesty Project there at Wake Forest. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of work you're doing in this project and what you're seeking to accomplish through it? Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. So this dovetails with what we were talking about earlier uh, as far as seeing that honesty is really neglected in academic research. So I just, once I saw that, I wanted to do some work myself and trying to get people to pay more attention to it. But then I also you know, thought, well, let's, let's make this bigger. Let's see if we can get other researchers involved and, and get them to spend some time on honesty. So I've been working with the John Templeton Foundation for over 10 years now, and they've been very generous in funding uh, my research and, and a number of projects on character. So they were very interested too. And so we partnered together to uh, launch this Honesty Project, which is a three-year project based at Wake Forest, which has two sides to it. There's the internal side where we're doing lots of research of our own. I'm writing, I'm going to be writing a trade book or a popular audience book in the coming years. I'm teaming up with psychologists at Wake Forest, and they're doing a whole bunch of new studies of honesty probing more of the empirical side and, and how honest we are. But then there's the, another big component of this project, and, and, and we'll have conferences and we'll have you know, class, we'll do teaching component to honesty and so forth. But there's a whole other big component, and that is funding researchers all over the world for their new and innovative ideas on honesty. So we've set aside $1.8 million and... We've run two funding competitions, one on the philosophy of honesty and the other on the empirical science of honesty. And we're going to, uh, we, we've run those competitions. We've picked the winners. We've notified them. We're currently uh, in the process of taking care of the paperwork. And in the next few weeks, we're going to announce that there are 16 teams, mainly in, in America, Canada, and in Europe, which are going to be launching their new projects in August uh, and hopefully really advancing the study of honesty in new, new and exciting directions. 
Well, that all sounds really interesting, and we'll definitely link to the project and also to the books that you've written on these uh, really important subjects as well in the show notes for listeners to be able to follow up if they want to learn more or follow along or maybe even participate in some of the work that you're doing there at Wake Forest. Well, one of the things that I always like to do with the podcast, especially as we end our conversation, is to give listeners kind of a next step. If they want to dig a little bit deeper, they want to learn a little bit more about some of the things we've talked about today, maybe what are one or two or three resources that you would recommend as kind of a next step outside of your book, obviously, that we will encourage listeners to grab? Are there books that you would recommend folks to kind of dig in if they want to learn a little bit more about virtue or moral psychology or moral philosophy? Is there kind of a good jumping off point for them? Oh boy, <laughs> there's so many. It's it's really hard to to narrow things down. Um, you know, it, it it will really depend on the background and interests of the listener. Um, some people are more historically inclined; they want to kind of go to the foundations where it all began. In that case, I would say you know someone like Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics. That is the heart of thinking about character and virtue in the Western philosophical tradition. That's where it really Plato as well. But I think Aristotle really works things out in such an influential and foundational way. Others might be more inclined to go in a, in a theological direction, uh, historically speaking. And so I would say, well, of course, the New Testament has plenty to say about this. Uh, but someone like Aquinas is the, the, the giant in the Christian tradition in thinking about character. Uh, others might say, well, you know, that's, that stuff's pretty hard. It's you know, more historical. It's kind of... A, a different world. I wanted something to, con, more contemporary to that I can relate to a little bit better. Um, and here we could go in a variety of different directions. David Brooks has a book called The Road to Character, uh, which is a nice entry point, and it focuses on exemplars. So it has, it, it, rather than being really theoretical and philosophical, it gives you a detailed sketch of the lives of several people who are exemplary in some way of as far as their character is concerned. So it's, it's very relatable, very you know, kind of personable, detailed, um, and inspiring, uh, which I, I like. I think it's really important too. So those are a couple initial ideas. Well, we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes for listeners, as well as a couple podcasts that we've actually recorded uh, with Dr. Matthew Arbo from Oklahoma Baptist University talking about virtue ethics, especially in the Christian tradition, as well as some other kind of modern philosophy uh, podcasts and interviews we've done just to give listeners a good set of resources. So thank you so much, Dr. Miller. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Weekly Tech. I'm grateful for this book and the Honesty Project and the work that you're doing and just always really challenged and encouraged by your work. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it being on your show. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Miller and learn more about his new book, as well as the recommended resources that he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up for the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can receive each Monday morning. This email briefing is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news and resources. You can subscribe at jasonbacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.